Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. G'day, everyone, and welcome back to the third and final episode on the Battle of Marrying San. Why is it that it always works out to take three episodes to tell many of these stories? I don't know. I certainly don't plan it that way. But before we bring this thing home, don't forget to check out the website, AustralianMilitaryHistoryPodcast.com, Facebook and Instagram. And feel free to drop me a line at amhp.media at gmail.com and please give me a review on iTunes. Also, I think I may have missed a week somewhere, so this one is going out a week late. It's a low standard of professionalism, even for me. And I promised I'd let you in on my little secret. Not that it's all that exciting. Basically, starting next year, I'll be opening a Patreon account. Why, you may ask? Well, obviously, I want my piece of this capitalist pie. I want the wealth, the power, and yes, the women. Okay, maybe not. I actually have an idea for a project I want to get off the ground. But to do that, I need a few extra dollars that I don't have. So I'd figured I'd see how this goes. The project is still very much related to Australian military history, but to find out what it is, you'll have to sign up to Patreon. For a wee monthly donation, you'll get access to ad-free episodes and a bonus episode each month. That bonus episode will be the stories of each of Australia's Victoria Cross recipients presented in chronological order, starting with Neville Howe's way back in the Boer War. I'll give you the details of all that next year. So last episode, we left 3 RAR after their successful attack on Hill 317 on the evening of the 5th of October 1951. B Company had done the bulk of the fighting and were just about done. B Company hadn't done much in the way of fighting, but they had covered a lot of ground in the days leading up to the attack, and they too were in need of a break. A Company had conducted a textbook diversionary attack earlier in the day and had now sent one platoon to reinforce D Company while the remainder of the company spent the night on Hill 199 with battalion headquarters. C Company had pushed through D Company's position and occupied the summit of Hill 317. The Royal Northumberland Fusiliers had made a solid attack against Hill 217 during the day but had suffered heavy casualties and were forced to retire almost back to their starting positions. This left Hill 217, Sierra Feature and The Hinge in enemy hands. Without these positions, the brigade's hold on Maryang Sand sector was not secure. Three RAR spent a cold and uncomfortable night up in the hills. As is standard practice, they had left their packs behind at the assembly points so they wouldn't be carrying that weight while attacking. But their sleeping gear and warm clothing were in those packs. Supplies were pushed up to them during the night, but only the essentials of food and ammunition could be bought up. Luxuries, such as warm clothing, were way down the priority list. They did, however, manage to bring some rum forward, which at least provided a little bit of comfort. Well, I did say they only bought the essentials, didn't I? And, of course, the Chinese didn't just let them curl up for a pleasant kip, either. They kept up a regular serving of mortar and machine gun fire throughout the night. The Australians were pretty safe down in their fighting pits, so the fire didn't cause any damage, but the troops were kept awake and uneasy all night. They snatched a bit of sleep here and there when they could, 
but no one could be classified as well-rested the following morning. While the troops dealt with the night as best they could, the commanders tried to figure out their next move. Brigadier Taylor, 28th Brigade Commander, and Lieutenant Colonel Hassett, OC 3RAR, discussed the situation, which basically boiled down to the fact that Hill 217 was too strongly defended to take from the south, as the Fusiliers had found out the previous day. The only way in was through the tradesman's entrance, from the back. To do this, the hinge had to be taken, but before that could be done, Sierra had to be secured. And so, with the Fusiliers stuck down south, the task of taking Sierra would fall to 3RAR, specifically Major Gurky's C Company. Gurky assigned the capture of Sierra to Lieutenant Pembroke's 9 Platoon with orders to move out at first light. At least Pembroke and 9 Platoon would have something to do to distract themselves from the cold for that night. Sierra sat about 500 metres to the west of Hill 317. 9 Platoon would need to make their way down the slope of Hill 317, cross a small saddle and then climb up the feature itself. If the usual morning fog lifted too early, they would be exposed and in a difficult position. Gurky moved up to the edge of C Company's position to watch Pembroke's progress as much as possible. Fortunately, the fog held and 9 Platoon made it to the base of Sierra without being seen. Pembroke halted the platoon and sent Corporal Danny Powell's section ahead to scope out the situation. Powell returned and advised that there was a large number of enemy, but they were cooking breakfast, cleaning weapons and carrying out other morning tasks. The platoon had caught them totally unprepared. Pembroke quickly formed a plan. They would crawl as close as they could, and then, on Pembroke's signal, they would throw their grenades and then pour into the position. It went almost according to plan. They threw their grenades, which devastated the Chinese troops. But as they jumped up to charge, a single machine gunner let out a burst from the hip and instantly killed Lance Corporal William Yeo. Enemy machine gun fire came from the hinge, but 9 Platoon's attack was devastating and while securing the position, Pembroke sent a section forward to silence that machine gun. Any surviving Chinese troops fled westward. While clearing the position, Pembroke counted 19 enemy dead and had captured 7. But his understrength platoon wasn't able to escort the wounded back, nor to take out Lance Corporal Yeo's body, while also developing the position to defend from the south and west. Pembroke requested Gurky to send forward some extra troops for this purpose. The Chinese obviously knew the importance of Sierra. They spent the remainder of that day launching fierce but unsuccessful counterattacks against 9 Platoon. Pembroke stated that he reckoned by the end of the day the wooded feature would no longer be wooded. In total, during the day, the Chinese pounded the position with 275 artillery and mortar shells. But, try as they might, they couldn't budge 9 Platoon. The capture of Sierra made the Hill 317 position secure. But more importantly, it provided an excellent forming up position for the attack on the hinge. But before that could happen, a bit of a reshuffle was required. Hassett decided that as B Company had taken part in comparatively little fighting up to that point, then the hinge would be their job. B Company moved forward from Victor and arrived at Sierra shortly before dusk and took over the responsibility from Pembroke, who returned to C Company on Hill 317. Pembroke was awarded the Military Cross for his leadership during the attack on Sierra. To maintain the northern flank, a company of the King's own Scottish borderers took over B Company's position on Victor and for the duration of the task would come under the command of 3RAR. While Pembroke was concentrating on taking Sierra, Brigadier Taylor felt that the Fusiliers should make another attempt at Hill 217. Y and Z Companies had suffered a mauling the previous day. Z Company suffered the worst and they were to be rested. 
W and X companies would make the main assault with W leading and X in reserve. Y company would move to the west to come at the Chinese from the southwest. W company made good progress and crested Hill 217 by 10am, facing very little resistance, but Y company encountered what was believed to be two Chinese companies while making their move, about 200 metres west of W company. Fierce fighting broke out and W was able to fire into the enemy's flank and call in artillery fire to support their beleaguered colleagues. The defenders eventually broke and Y Company was able to join W Company on Hill 217. X Company then arrived for its part in the plan. Their job was to relieve W and push on and attack the Chinese machine gun position. Despite the heavy artillery support they received, the two attempts by X were repulsed with heavy losses. Communications with the artillery support were dogged by dropouts, and when the Chinese counterattacked from the west, the heavily depleted Fusilier companies were unable to hold them. At 3.15pm, they fell back to their original starting positions. As if confirmation was needed after the first day, Taylor conceded that Hill 217 couldn't be taken from the front. The two days of fighting had cost the Fusiliers 16 killed and 94 wounded, with three missing in action. To make things worse for the regiment, they were due to be returned home in just two weeks' time. Must have been a bitter pill to have so many of their comrades lost so close to the end of their time in Korea. But undoubtedly, their efforts drew enemy fire and troops away from 3RAR and made their attacks on Hill 317 and Sierra easier than they otherwise would have been. That's the way it goes in war. Some units take a belting to make things easier for other units. Back with 3RAR, Hassett knew that attacking the hinge would be an altogether different prospect than the flanking attacks on the previous day. The Chinese would know they were coming and where they were coming from. Their defences would be well prepared and would take a lot of shifting. To deal with this, Hassett pushed back H-hour to 8am to give time for the fog to lift. This may seem a bit strange, sending them forward without their usual cover. But Hassett planned to replace fog with firepower. Together with Roxburgh, the artillery commander, he came up with a detailed fire plan that would provide a preliminary bombardment followed by a protective barrage as B Company began its advance. To provide the best cover possible, Hassett and Roxborough needed to see exactly where B Company was in order to put the shells in just the right spot. Hence the need to wait for the fog to lift. As well as the artillery, the tank regiment had units spread out around the battle area, having provided support to all previous attacks, and so as B Company advanced, they were able to add their strength to the barrage. Throw in a couple of airstrikes and B Company would be going forward with the full weight of support available. B Company was under the command of Captain Henry Wings Nichols. He had served with the 2nd 1st Pioneer Battalion in the Middle East, including the Siege of Tobruk. He was awarded the MC at Tobruk when he led a party which followed an enemy patrol back to their positions. He then led the charge into the position, bayoneting eight soldiers and capturing a prisoner. When his battalion returned to Australia, Nichols transferred to the 1st Australian Parachute Battalion, hence the nickname Wings. He thought that jumping out of planes was a bit tame though, and so he joined Z Special Unit, conducting raids around New Guinea and Borneo. He retired briefly from the army until the Korean War broke out, and not having had enough excitement in World War II, he signed on again and joined 3RAR. B Company stepped off on the dot of 8, with C Company moving in to occupy the vacated positions. They made it to the enemy bunkers without incident and surprisingly found them empty. Seemed a bit strange, but an empty post is never anything to sneer at, and so they continued on. By now, the company had become a little strung out. Corporal Ted Bodsworth, 
leading five platoon at the rear of the advance, heard movement on both sides of the ridge they were advancing down. Too late, he realised what was happening. Heavy fire broke out behind the two leading platoons. They had walked into an ambush. Rather than stay in their fighting base and hold off the Australians that way, the Chinese had pulled back a short distance into a perfect ambush position, allowing the first two platoons to pass before opening up on company headquarters and five platoon. Sergeant Darcy Eccles, acting company sergeant major, was mortally wounded in the opening salvo. The ambush threw five platoon into a bit of disarray and things degenerated into separate hard-fought scraps. Bosworth returned the enemy fire with his Brennan gun and then organised his section into extended line and charged. He was hit three times and lost consciousness. Corporal Jack Park noticed a group of enemy attacking up a re-entrant and coordinated Bren gun fire and grenades to break up the attack. He killed a number of enemy himself and when one threw a grenade in his direction, Park dodged the grenade and then killed the thrower with his bare hands. It may sound brutal in the safe, calm environment of a podcast episode, but in the army we were always taught that the only response to an ambush was to attack immediately and attack hard. Nichols pushed through the melee to reach his forward two platoons, who were also engaged heavily. Sergeant Patrick O'Connell of 4 platoon ran through a hail of machine gun bullets to retrieve a wounded soldier, and Lieutenant Jim Hughes led a grenade attack which halted a Chinese move and secured his flank. When it had all died down, B Company was reduced to just 50 men. It took Nichols about 40 minutes to reorganise and get the company moving again. By 8.45 they were moving and came under fire from machine guns on a ridge 600 metres to the north. But they pushed on and by 9.30 they were in possession of the hinge. The Chinese tactic of abandoning their positions and ambushing the Australians had almost paid off. But the dogged fighting by B Company eventually neutralised the ambush and the vacated positions then just needed to be occupied. Just like the other positions which 3 RAR had captured, the Chinese defences on the hinge were oriented the wrong way to repel any counter-offensive. So despite being under mortar fire, Nichols got his men working to dig new trenches facing the likely Chinese counter-attack. Brigadier Taylor ordered that no further advances were to be made so as to reduce casualties. Nichols, Bosworth, Park and Hughes all received medals for their actions during B Company's advance. Corporal Thomas Tunstall was awarded the Military Medal for continuously evacuating and treating the wounded while under fire. But of course, the Chinese knew the strategic importance of the hinge, and they weren't going to give it up that easily. Throughout the rest of the day, they pounded the ridgeline from the hinge to Hill 317. At about 12.40pm, the rate of fire increased, and the first counter-attack came in at 1.30 and was repulsed. They came on again at 2pm, with the intention of cutting off B Company, hitting Sierra and the base of Hill 317. It took 40 minutes to beat off this second attack. Hassett knew that these attacks were just strong probes and that a full counter-attack was going to come on at some stage, most likely that night. He knew B Company had been severely depleted during the ambush and so he sent Lieutenant McWilliams and A platoon from C Company to reinforce B. This now left only one platoon and company headquarters of C Company on Hill 317. So Hassett ordered the assault pioneers to Hill 317 to bolster the numbers there and the anti-tank platoon under Captain Rolfe joined Pembroke's 9 platoon on Sierra. He then ordered Shelton's A Company to be ready to move at short notice. He had thought about sending A Company to push on to take Hill 217, but thought better of it. A Company was his only reserve, and with the hinge still not properly secured, it would be too risky sending them on. As the day drew to a close, the companies were all dug in, or occupying Chinese positions, phone lines had been laid, 
and resupply had been completed along with casualty evacuation. They were as ready as they were going to be. And then a silence fell across the battlefield. Some described it as eerie, others as ominous. And then, at 8pm, the Chinese guns opened up with a barrage that lasted 45 minutes. Lieutenant Hughes of 4 Platoon said, It was so concentrated that it was like Guy Fawkes' night. The whole sky was lit up. Hassett likened it to Dante's Inferno and was amazed that the battalion's casualties were fairly light. After 45 minutes, the artillery ceased and the Chinese fired flares into the sky and attacked in two battalion-sized waves against the Hinge and Sierra. A heavy mist had begun to descend, allowing some of the attackers to make their way into B Company's position before they were seen. Fortunately, as the barrage ended, Nichols had ordered his men to stand to and they were ready. Hughes recalled that all throughout the company, the cry of watch your front was heard. As the Chinese infantry surged forward, B and C companies engaged them with small arms and grenades. In the darkness, it was difficult to identify targets making their way up the approach routes. But the Australians had earlier marked out these routes and worked out a fire plan which went a long way to dealing with the attack. The opening barrage had cut many of the phone lines and so 3RAR was unable to raise brigade headquarters and request artillery support. But Brigadier Taylor was an old infantryman and he knew what the Chinese barrage meant and that 3RAR would be needing support. And so he ordered all 72 guns of the division to fire in support of the Australians. The gunners at first hesitated. The brig wasn't a gunner after all, and fire orders were supposed to come through the appropriate channels. But Taylor soon got his way, and the Chinese attack was devastated by the artillery fire. More counterattacks were launched throughout the night, and with some of the phone lines repaired, artillery and airstrikes were able to be called in any time a large body of Chinese troops could be identified. All up, the divisional artillery sent 11,382 rounds downrange that night. Mostly, though, the main threat now was through small groups of Chinese infiltrating the lines. Many got close enough to toss grenades into trenches. B Company had managed to lay some trip wires using telephone cable late in the afternoon, and when the infiltrators fell over the wire, the Bren gunners opened fire. Repelling the counterattack and dealing with infiltrators caused B Company to burn through nearly four times the usual amount of ammunition. Despite being resupplied during the afternoon of 6th of October, by early morning on the 7th, they were dangerously low on ammunition. But by 5am on the 7th, the Chinese attacks had ceased. Three RAR were now fairly secure on the Hinge, Sierra and Hill 317. They later counted 120 dead Chinese troops and a fair amount of body parts, suggesting the artillery had exacted a heavy toll. The Australians had lost 13 dead and 15 wounded throughout the night, mostly as a result of the Chinese shelling. Probably a good thing at this point to bring your attention to an unrepresented factor in assuring the success of any extended campaign. This is the provision of food, water and ammunition to the frontline troops and supporting units, otherwise known as the element of supplies. Ooh, tough crowd. But yeah, that was pretty crook. Anyway, thousands of artillery and mortar rounds and hundreds of thousands of bullets continually needed to be brought forward as well as food, water and medical supplies. Such enormous amounts of material couldn't physically be stored close to the units who needed them. So throughout the entirety of the battle, a constant chain of vehicles and men were bringing it all forward from supply depots further back from the line. Initially, trucks would bring it all to the staging area in what was known as B Echelon, and then it was brought forward, mainly by Korean porters, to A Echelon, where it was distributed. While coordinating his attacks and making his plans, 
Hassett had to be constantly aware of what supplies had been used up and how much he had in reserve and on its way from further back. A lot of the focus of military history is focused on those at the pointy end, so an occasional shout-out to those who keep the four troops fed, armed and able to continue the fight is always appropriate. And now back to the front line. The 8th of October dawned and for the first time there was no heavy mist covering the battlefield. And that battlefield was an horrific sight. Lieutenant Pears described it as a charnel house. Dante would have drawn inspiration from the pain and misery. End quote. In an event reminiscent of the truce on Gallipoli following the Turkish offensive in May 1915, a truce was organised on the 8th so that both sides could collect their dead and wounded. You can only imagine how that task must have played havoc on the psyche of the troops. It's all well and good to kill and maim in the heat of battle when the blood's up. It must be another thing altogether to come face to face with the end result. At 9am, two companies of the borderers moved up and relieved the exhausted B and C companies, who were glad to be leaving the area. Hassett knew that his men were just about buggered, and felt that it was more important to ensure that their current gains were secured than it was to send A Company to take Hill 217. A number of Australian platoons remained on the summit throughout the day until the rest of the borders were able to take over. The Chinese were still firing from a position north of Hill 217, but it soon became clear that there was no longer any enemy troops on Hill 217 itself. Brigadier Taylor ordered the Fusiliers and Borderers to patrol to the summit, and by late afternoon the Fusiliers, who had twice been hammered in their attempts to take the position, moved in without opposition. As Taylor and Hassett had figured, with the hinge in Australian possession, Hill 217 was no longer a viable defensive position. By the morning of the 9th, with 3 RAR out on its feet, according to Hassett, Hill 317 was handed over to the borderers and the Australian battalion, which had captured three heavily defended enemy positions in as many days, were moved back to the ridge from which they had advanced back on the 5th for a well-earned breather. Well, for what constituted a breather in that area. The Chinese were still active and 3 RAR needed to strengthen their position. But Operation Commando was over and despite hard fighting and sometimes heavy losses, the Commonwealth troops had achieved all their objectives and had reached the Jamestown line. The official count of Chinese casualties during Operation Commando was 474 dead, 241 wounded and 93 POWs. For its part, 3 RAR lost 19 ORs killed, 5 officers and 90 ORs wounded, with none missing. Overall casualties for the 28th Brigade was 2 officers and 47 men killed, 19 officers and 246 men wounded. The Fusiliers, in their two attempts at taking Hill 217, had suffered 12 killed and 88 wounded. But surely, you say, this massive attack must have forced the Chinese back and put them on the back foot during the next round of peace negotiations. Must have been worth the casualties for that kind of result. Well, unfortunately, no. The Chinese understood the importance of Mariang San area, and in November, less than a month after losing the position, they launched a massive attack, and the borderers, despite gallant and hard fighting, were forced back, and the hard-won gains were lost. The Chinese held on to the position for the rest of the war, and today, it's in North Korea. The best you can say about the outcome is that 3RAR earned itself the moniker Old Faithful, a name it has proudly carried through every major engagement of the Australian Army ever since. And that's it for this year. Thank you all for your continued support. It still surprises me that people still want to tune in. Have a great Christmas, Yule, Hanukkah, a New Year, or whatever you celebrate this time of year. Or if you celebrate nothing, then just enjoy whatever it is you want to be doing. 
I have a few things I have to get on top of over the coming months, so it'll probably be end of February before I'm back on deck. But it could be sooner. We'll just have to see how things pan out. Have a good one, and we'll see you next year. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.